and finding a posture, whatever you are, that invites that sense of dignity, sense of showing up. This is a hard exploration maybe for some, but we're here. There is no agenda here. There is no need to forgive, to let go. No, there's just the invitation to explore, but explore in a particular way, kind, compassionate way. Carmen Alonzo is leading a mindfulness session for incarcerated individuals virtually over a video call. Before the pandemic, she conducted the sessions in person through her organization, Just Mindfulness. But now, she had a new challenge. Carmen recruited Aaron Hicks, Nehemiah's reentry coordinator, who leads coaching and mentoring sessions for those currently or formerly incarcerated, to join her in recording sessions in order to encourage men in prison to open themselves up to mindfulness techniques. I'm taking a few moments here to just feel the body breathing, the body making contact with the chair, the floor, maybe feeling whatever is supporting your body at this moment. Just, and perhaps you can let go of yourself into that sense of being supported. Yeah, we can talk about the physical support of the bed, the chair. We can also talk about the support of the circle. Everybody in this class, the support from the four of us. It's kind of like bringing that sense of, yeah, there is a container here, a container of care as we explore the territory of forgiveness. So maybe letting yourself go a little bit more into this container, knowing, yeah, there's a group of caring people here, people that care about me and my process and my healing, my journey, my freedom. Like so many of us right now, we are just trying to get through this COVID-19 pandemic one day at a time. At the beginning, with the stay-at-home orders here in Wisconsin, I would find myself wandering the house aimlessly, and more often than not, ending up in the kitchen to scrounge for some food to snack on. My wife, on the other hand, often didn't feel like eating much, the anxiousness of the unknown too overwhelming to think about things like eating. I think in this bizarre form of isolation, we have all went through various phases of loneliness, anxiety, and restlessness. It's easy to say that we feel like prisoners in our own homes. There's been a debate among the reentry staff at Nehemiah about the analogy of the pandemic being used in reference to things like being in lockdown, or feeling like being in solitary confinement, or a prisoner in our own home. When these kinds of references have been made, it brings an intimate sense of understanding for much of our staff, who have either previously spent time incarcerated or have been impacted by those incarcerated. So if I think about from back in the days from when I was incarcerated to even now, and if I was incarcerated and, um, you know, from the beginning of COVID, and really seeing the seeing it 
firsthand of, of what how what COVID looks like and how how people's lives are being affected, man, I will, it, you know, because if you all don't care about me in here, I'm just a number anyway. Um, or I'm just a, a, a we we see ourselves at, at oftentimes a, as a check for you know especially we get into breaking down privatized prisons and things of that nature. I mean, man, your your life you you feel you feel less than you feel like the way how people feel already feel about you. That's a part you know what I mean. So so it's it's one thing when you have individuals who may feel that way about you, but it's another another thing when you actually believe it. And when that belief, when that belief, pretty much it 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 clouds your judgment. It clouds it clouds it clouds the way how you breathe every day when you get up in the morning. Those are I, I don't think I don't think anyone would ever want to be in that because that's that's one hell of a dark place. Now that we are approaching a year of COVID nineteen in America our incarcerated population are being pushed to their limits even more. We want to share some of our connections to those incarcerated and returning citizens and the reality of their experiences here in Wisconsin. This is Eli Steenlidge. I'm Aaron Hicks, and you're about to hear some justified anger. People don't know if they're going to get the proper health care that they deserve, right? So you don't know if you're going to die in there or not. And so that's what makes the fear factor so real, because you don't know what's going to happen to you during these times. You don't know what's going to happen to you. And then to add to the equation, you don't know what's going to happen to your loved ones. You don't know if you're going to ever see them again. And so these are the things that I hear. Um, and it makes it that much more stress stressful for these individuals because there's a lot coming at them and at the same time um it's always you know do the right thing be good and do all of these things but you got so many obstacles in front of you and so it makes it um hard to even stay focused when you right now you're just currently fighting for your life you're just trying to fight from day to day just to live and that's a different fight it's no longer about punishment anymore. This is about survival of the fittest. You know what I mean? And so it's like, will I make it to see another day? Will I be able to take another breath? Will I be able to hug my kids again? You know, whether a person is married or they have a significant other, will I be able to see them again and touch them again? And those things are very scary when you have to live like that day in and day out. It's easy for many of us who have not been directly impacted by the criminal justice system or the correction system to not give much thought to those already locked away in a prison or jail cell. So I asked Aaron Hicks to help us understand more what being incarcerated really looks like mentally and physically and how the pandemic has affected this experience. Going to jail, your mental, because it's so congested, and you're in, you, you're in such small areas, that affects you in ways that, um, man, your mental, your psyche be, it'd it be off the chart. Like you, you, more than anything, you're probably more angry. You get angry much faster. 
You can get in fights. I got in fights. And so I was very stressed, very high stress. I was facing a significant amount of time. I actually was facing 30 years. Um, and so that in itself was affecting my mental, not knowing what is going to happen, not knowing how much time I'm going to have to face, not knowing if I'm ever going to come home again. And if I do, how old I'm going to be. But it's so stressful that the effects of your of the stress start to affect your physical, your outer body. For example, I started, my skin was, my skin would like itch really, really, really bad. And I didn't realize, I thought maybe it was the soap or the water. Or, I didn't realize it was all connected to me being stressed out. I didn't really learn that until after I was out of that environment. And I used to literally jump up out of my bed, out of my sleep, and just put cold water across my face to just trying to calm myself down. And because my anxiety uh, levels were off the charts, you get recycled air. And I was in there for um, probably about a year, maybe a little bit over a year. So being in, in a small vicinity for for a year and some change um, is, is very hard, very stressful, and it can totally break you. And I saw some of the biggest guys um, broken, right? And a lot of people wind up on medication, not even through a therapist or none of the above, just asking, can you put me on meds? And that was their way of coping, right? Shannon Ross has had time to reflect on the mental state that prison puts a person in. Yeah, the isolation in prison, um, like I said, it just, it just amplified that, that sense of being isolated because you can distract yourself inside. A lot of people will say when somebody gets a lot of time that, oh, I can never do that, or I'd kill myself, or I'd do... You get a lot of comments like that when somebody gets, you know, I had, I had 17 years, and people have way more than that. Somebody gets life. And so the human mind finds a way to adapt to a lot of very difficult, almost horrifying situations. Uh, you don't realize that until you're in it, how adaptable and how plastic the mind is when it comes to these situations. So it's something where even though there's this massive isolation, people find ways within this restrictions of the prison environment to just kind of acclimate. I mean, that sounds terrible, but that's kind of what you have to do in that situation. Because the, 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 you know, the only alternative is to just go crazy or to just struggle so significantly in many bodily and mental ways that you're basically killing yourself. And, and you're also hurting the, the ones that are supporting you, that are trying to be there for you because it pains them to see you going through this in such a difficult way. So there's a lot of people who fake it in the inside. They won't tell people what's going on. I did that a lot. I wouldn't tell people things that were going on and struggles I was having because I felt like it was, it was my duty to keep them from that. Uh, because I'd already caused them enough pain by getting locked up. So the least I can do is try and limit what they experience secondhand, the second arrow, um, you know, to use the Buddhist analogy, um, from from my experience inside and what I was going through. So now going into the prison system, um, you're still in a small quarters. The stress level is still very high because um, for myself, I was sentenced to 16 years running consecutive to two. Um, and so I didn't know how I was going to be able to do all that time. And I didn't know how much time I was going to do. Right. So you never, it's never clear about how much time you're going to actually do, how long you're going to actually sit. Um, 
And so I got moved around a lot. Like I said, I was I started off in Fox Lake, and that was in 99. In 2000, they opened up a prison, uh, Red Granite. And so anytime they open a prison, they got to fill it, right? And so that's exactly what they did. So they moved me from Fox Lake to Red Granite. I stayed there uh, from 2000 to 2002. Um, and during my time of incarceration, they were sending individuals out of state. Um, so I wind up going to Minnesota. I had never been to Minnesota before ever. Um, and I was a privatized prison and I was close up by Fargo. So close to North Dakota, um, nowhere near any of my siblings, loved ones, none of the above, uh, never getting a visit. And I stayed there from 2002 to 2005. And then when I came back from, from, um, Minnesota, they brought me to Oshkosh. And again, your, your levels of stress is off the charts. And so you have to find ways to be able to cope, sneak and figure out ways to bring drugs in. And then some people just learn how to, you know, you utilize things like meditation, not even knowing that's what it is, but, you know, being finding ways to calm yourself. Okay, so just finding that posture that invites a sense of dignity, you know, a sense of self-respect, a sense of showing up. I am here, I am here right now. And maybe allowing the eyes to close, shoulders relaxed, and maybe checking in, what is here? What is here in this mind? What thoughts are around? What's the weather like in the mind at this moment? You know, a few things came to my mind right away. Uh, <clears throat> I have to just say that I, I, I learned the power of forgiveness right there in prison. Um, and I didn't know the importance of it. I didn't really have a someone to kind of guide me through it. Um, it's interesting how you, you don't even realize how things kind of stick with you until, I don't know, something occurs. Something happens in your life that kind of triggers something in your past. Um, I, I'm, I shared the story um, with you guys a little bit. Um, when I when I was a kid, my mom she had she had MS. She was a quadriplegic, um, and I have two older sisters. I'm the youngest. Um, but the the guy that she was dating um, was very very abusive, physically abusive and sexually abusive towards my sisters. Um, and honestly, um, a lot of the sexual abuse piece I didn't learn until after my incarceration. So it was a lot I didn't know. Um, my middle sister, she's two years older than me and my older sister is four years older than me. Um, but I used to watch this guy like violently, like slap my mother out of her wheelchair. And like, I would just, I, I was a mama's boy. So, and I didn't know my dad at all. So I would just stand next to her and I would just cry. And in my mind, as that little boy, I knew 
Like, if I ever got older, older, and I saw that dude, I would kill him. Like, you heard my mom. I don't even know all the reasons why. I know that my mom actually took beatings for us so that we didn't get whooped. Um, and so those things, I, I marvel at how it sticks with you. Um, and as time went on throughout my life, I was a very, very angry young man. Um, but being honest with you, I didn't always know why I was so angry. Um, and I didn't always know um, how to deal with the, this anger that dwelt inside of me. Um, and as time went on, I totally wanted to change my life and do something different. But just being honest with you, I didn't know what different looked like. I mean, I, this is all I've seen my whole life. Like, you know, like what people, what you guys like study and write curriculums about, I've lived it every day like from sun up to sundown. So when I made it to uh, Oshkosh, um, again, I'll share, it was, a, it was a guy actually sleeping up under me. We had like bunk beds. And his question to me was, do I know you from somewhere? And I looked at him and I said, no, I don't think so. Wasn't a familiar face, wasn't nothing that, nothing. Um, I don't know, like the space of two to three minutes went past and he asked me, where are you from? Um, the, um, and I said, well, I'm from Milwaukee, but I live in Madison. And he said, oh, okay. And when he said that, I can just tell you that I had an anger that I never, I've never even felt it before. Like I've been angry and upset and even being incarcerated and going to court and all of those different things. But this anger I had was much, much, it was way it succeeded. It, all of the angers I ever had in my life, it was very violent. I could totally feel every emotion behind it. Um, and at that moment, it was the very thing that was driving me. And uh, I started to proceed to get off of my bed and I wanted to do bodily harm to this individual. Um, and I wasn't gonna use any type of weapons. My only weapons was gonna be my hands. Um, but I didn't realize I had a hurt that heavy inside of me. Aaron told me about how he joined these mindfulness sessions aimed at those incarcerated. So I had met Carmen and she was doing mindfulness inside of, of the prisons. And once the uh, pandemic happened, it kind of stifled her from being able to do that. And so she talked to me about some of the work that she was doing. And so I thought, wow, that's that's super good. I was I was really impressed with it. Um, and she asked me, she asked me what I consider doing some of the uh, mindfulness with her and go through some of the curriculum with her. And I thought, man, that would be an awesome opportunity. And what really pushed me and prompted me, it, it didn't even, it was no hesitation. 
Um, I desire to do it because I kind of, I have a full understanding of what's taking place in prison, but I also knew the power of mindfulness. Um, And she educated me more on it even more, which also started helping me apply it into my own life. And so that's what really got me on that path to utilizing mindfulness. And so um, to this day, um, whenever I do talk about incarceration, um, I also like to share um, the power of mindfulness with other people just because how it has impacted my own life. Okay, we are recording. Hello, everybody. It's nice to be with you again. All of us longing to be with you in person, but here we are doing once again what we can during these crazy times that we are living. Carmen Alonso, Aaron, and two others record their mindfulness sessions and conversations, then send them to the prison chaplain to share with those incarcerated. The goal is to demonstrate the power that thoughtful reflection and change can have in a person's life. So today we'll do some practice together, conversation, and we'll explore some issues around communication. When I did not know how to communicate, I guess my listening skills wasn't that great because I wanted to be heard. And I didn't know that there was an art to communication. And I didn't know in that art, listening plays a huge factor. Where I feel I am now, I'm much more um, intentional and in tune with whatever dialogue is going on around me. And sometimes you just need to hear. I remember uh, I was in Oscott from 2005 to 2010. <clears throat> there was a, a officer called me down to the to the desk, and it was it was a unique situation. Uh, he called me down, and I figured maybe I got a visit, or I don't know, I had to go do something. But he actually wanted me to talk to a guy. His grandmother had just passed away, and I thought to myself, "Wow, that's kind of heavy. What do I say?" Is the first thing that came to my mind. Like I've never dealt with that, and I don't really know what I'm supposed to do in this situation. But I think that's where I learned the power of just listening, having an ear to hear, and just allowing this individual to share what he was going through and how he felt. A lot of times it's hard for me because um, the very curriculum in which we do is a part of who I am. So it's different because it's like, this is, these are the things that people have discussions on. This is the very thing that I've lived. Um, and just real briefly, something so ironic, when I, when I came home from prison, one of the classes that I took was criminology. And just being honest with you, as honest as I can be, I didn't really know much about criminology and I didn't really know much about like school like that, just the whole education part about like that. And when I went into my class and I started to see attorneys and possible DAs and judges and police officers, I marveled at the fact like, again, the very curriculum in which they're talking about, you you talking about my life. This ain't even, and it was just blowing me away. Um, it was just blowing me away. 
And I just, I just wanted to share that with you because for some people, they don't know that, it, you know, it's possible to release those things from them, but it, it's very, it, it was very vital in my life. And it, it really, and that's what made me coin the saying, you, you, you can't heal what you won't reveal. And I believe that wholeheartedly. So I just wanted to share that with you guys. And so fast forwarding with the pandemic, it, it totally was a game changer. Really just working and talking with individuals. Um, they no longer were getting any visits, um, no longer getting any contact with families and loved ones. Everything became virtual. So just, just the power of touch. You, you, you miss that. You miss those things and you're not getting it. And I don't really think people clearly have a clear understanding of what actually is being produced when you take away those things from these individuals. We understand that 85 to 90, almost 95% of people who go into prison will get back out. It's only a small percentage of individuals who will never get back out. I marvel at how much we talk and put so much emphasis on trauma-informed care, but the very place in which these individuals are in creates the most trauma, and ultimately, it makes it that much more difficult for individuals to adjust coming back into the community. It made it, I mean, it just, it just clearly made it worse um, with the aspect of being isolated when everything happened, because you have lost those opportunities to feel like maybe you're doing something throughout your day or to, you know, exercise, meditation, um, all these things that were maybe available if you could get away briefly or if you had groups and volunteers coming in, church services, if you could go to the library and, you know, just engage in something to get your mind off the environment that that could keep you from feeling that isolation as, as you know, poignantly, then that, that changed though. You know, you don't have those anymore. Now it's like everybody's suddenly in the hole. In fact, Putting people in the hole is literally how some prisons are handling infections. And it is important to remember that the hole is in reference to solitary confinement. So incarcerated people are being given a severe form of punishment as a solution for a health condition. Some have called out this approach as a human rights violation. We have to ask what the effect is mentally. There's a, a, a quote by Warren Buffett that I think applies to so many things in life. And it's when the tide goes out, we find out who's swimming with no underwear. So, you know, it's a lot of people found out they had been swimming with no underwear when that happened. They really had never been in the mind state they might've thought they were. They were just distracting themselves. And now it's like, well, you know, you really don't have the access to people. You really don't have the access to wreck and these things that distract you from the difficulty of what you're dealing with. And so, you know, now how are you gonna handle this? So it just, it just really exposed a lot of the, um, the, the rawness that the experience has on a person's nerves um, once the ability, once the distractions are taken away. And so that's what that isolation, I think aspect kicked in is just showing everybody just how isolated they were if they had been up until then, maybe distracting themselves or um, convincing themselves it wasn't as bad as it was. From what we have been hearing from those currently incarcerated, the meager mental health services that were offered before COVID-19 are almost now non-existent during the heightened stress of the pandemic. 
Shannon Ross detailed to me how mental health and mindfulness programs in the past that may have been more helpful were quickly replaced with one-size-fits-all programs with watered-down results. More often than not, there were simply checkboxes to mark off participation in institutional programs. Mental health needs to take into account individuals, not just numbers. And th there's no one there to support and help them navigate through these type of things. And so again, the question has to be asked, I believe, wh what are we producing? Because, because such a big percentage of people will get back out, then what are we producing? And, <clears throat> and, and how will this affect these individuals coming back into the community? Have we, we put a lot of emphasis on keeping the community safe. And the question has to be asked by doing what we're doing, is this actually keeping our community safe? There's, there's always in prison a underlying bitterness and lack of patience and a temper that guys, most guys have inside. So on any given day, you can hear, uh, you know, somebody or some staff member getting cussed out by somebody incarcerated. Um, just because that's kind of a coping mechanism. Guys have no power, so they feel like they're going to yell at you or cuss at you. And it's not even stuff. Like I said, it can be to their cellie or to their friend. Or you go to the day room, and day room's a massive bitch session. Guys will just complain about their roommate or something that happened at work or at rec. And so that's just the way they handle things. And so there's always that aspect to you know being incarcerated. But when COVID happened, it was amplified. It was easily, definitely, palliative, um, um, perceptibly amp amplified in the sense that now we're losing all these things and there's all these ideas just like with society about what should really be happening how it should really be addressed you have guys complaining just because they can about how um no one's the staff won't wearing masks and everybody should have masks on and they would say those things and then when the mask policy came where everybody had to wear them then it was like well, these masks are stupid why do we have to wear these masks so it was just there's a, a sense of you can never make everybody happy in there and guys are going to complain no matter what but even with that part of it where you can't address the, um, the, the quality and the degree to which people will complain no matter what, there was a very valid and profound change in the ability to handle all the restrictions because those coping mechanisms that previously existed with rec and with being able to talk to your family more often and being able to get away from maybe the unit or your cellmates or whatever it may be, was gone or was heavily restricted. And so there were a lot of valid concerns and fears from people about, you know, people in there getting sick and then them getting sick. The, the younger ones didn't really care a lot, but there were the older ones that definitely, you know, they, they were the ones obviously who should care and who cared a lot. And it was concern about nobody around them wearing masks. And so they couldn't really do anything themselves in there. It was concern from a guys about their family members on the outside who, were sick or actually did have COVID and they couldn't communicate with them. They couldn't really reach out to them um, because of restrictions on phone or because of maybe the person's in the hospital and they couldn't really call them and their loved ones couldn't even go to see them that were free. So there was a lot of that that just made it even more difficult. Um, it was like everybody got a, a, a suddenly a increased mental health, you know, issue. Like everybody that might've been healthy, it might've been okay uh, in some degree there. And those who are already struggling, it just made it that much worse. I'm just saying, I had an interesting call yesterday. I had a gentleman that's inside that said, you know, the sad thing is I look around and there's some people that you can just clearly see are open and talking about what's going on. But he said, there's a lot of people that really are kind of oblivious to the fact that they, they even have an, a mental health issue right yeah. now. 
And then he's also seen some that have came around where they really didn't know that they had it or, or it was affecting them. And then just recently discovered, you know, through talking about it that, Hey, you know what, this, this stuff is actually deeper than I was thinking it was. So I feel like there's a lot of people that are walking around that have no idea that they're even being affected period. That's right. And then let alone how to, how do you, how do you solve that problem and how do you fix yourself and mend yourself when you don't even know that you're hurt the way you are. That's right. To go and even ask for help. You, you, you don't, you don't, you don't know what to do. You don't, you're not even conscious to those type of things. Yeah. And a lot and of self-blame. It becomes very saddening to just see the effects that COVID is having on these individuals. Because again, like I said, the stress level was at an all time high. And again, we spend so much time emphasizing on trauma-informed care, but the people, the very people who need that help and that assistance are the very people who are not getting it at all. I think I told you this a long time ago, but I believe that being in prison for a long period of time affects everyone's mental health. It's not normal to be deprived of your family, of affection, and of mental, verbal, and physical stimulation for long periods of time. Being here makes us excellent conversationalists because we read a lot, as well as keep up on current events, but at the same time, it undoubtedly makes us a little socially awkward. I mean, think about it. Whether you want or not, we as humans adapt to our environment, and for the past 20 years, this has been my environment. Do you not believe that being in an environment where I've constantly been abandoned, mistreated, and abused by authority hasn't affected me? The way I think, the way I act, the way I react, and the way I perceive normalcy? It absolutely has. This place changes you. You learn a lot, but over time you also lose a lot of yourself. Have you ever heard the old saying, show me who you're friends with and I'll tell you who you are? That's because your environment makes you who you are. I believe that's why I have such a difficult time expressing myself. I've been dealing with things on my own for so long that emotionally I feel I'm all I have. Hardly anyone here shows vulnerability because we're in an environment where it gets taken advantage of. That can't be healthy. Not trusting can't be healthy, but due to abandonment issues, a lot of us don't trust, and that's normal to us. A lot of us have mental health issues and don't even realize it. Our environment has normalized the irrational. So... When I finally got released, you, you become so institutionalized that everything you do is kind of like you still incarcerated, consciously or unconsciously. That's just kind of how you move. One thing I correlated with being in the military, um, just in this sense, in the military, they break you down and build you up for a purpose. Incarceration breaks you down And it kind of just leaves you and you kind of got to figure out what's going to be the outcome. What will be, you know, the determining factors? Will you allow yourself to stay down or will you actually, you know, be built back up? Rebecca Barber had some recent phone conversations with some incarcerated men to check in on how they were weathering the continued pandemic restrictions. Hello? Hey, how you doing? How you doing? I'm doing okay. You just take a second and whatever whatever you want to say, go ahead and just let it out. As far as like the help that we need and stuff like that, like we they they want us to report to them that if we feel any type of symptoms, symptoms, 
you know, or with the, we think we have the corona uh, the virus, and when we report it to them, uh, they they not they they doing nothing uh, for us, no help, it's nothing. They don't even have the help, even if they really wanted to, I guess. But uh, they put us in a hole and give us tolerance. Like what? That that ain't nothing but bringing more stress. Mm-hmm. And you know, it's people that, that that die off of it, and, and they try to keep that a secret. You know, so just as far as like just the system and what's going on, you know. It's really any time is a bad time to be incarcerated, but like right now it's like the worst time. And as far as helping having a hand up, which we have our hand up and need for help, you know, it's no nothing in return, nothing, you know, no response to us. Mm-hmm. And have you, um, have you actually have had COVID, or have you been lucky oh, enough yeah, to? Yeah. You have had yeah, it. No, no, I, I had it. I, I, I got the um, coronavirus. Um, um, I say like ninety days ago, probably almost ninety days ago, and. It felt like I was on my deathbed, you know, whole body aches, you know, um, yeah, I just, I couldn't walk, you know, it broke me down, and, and it's coming from somebody who, uh, you know, very active, mm-hmm. you know, working out faithfully, you know, and it broke me down, you know, like, like I was a newborn, you know, I couldn't, I couldn't do for myself. Mm-hmm. And then what about your yeah. situation? Were you still stuck in the room with a, with a cellmate at the time, or did they put uh, you in the yeah, hole? Uh, To none to, to them because I knew what was going on. I, it wasn't no help because I wasn't the first one to to, uh, to catch it. Mm-hmm. You know, so as far as the help, I knew I was better off trying to help myself basically. And I just sat in the room and and, uh, and basically detoxed my body as far as taking pictures and pictures of water. Mm-hmm. But I caught the corona. They still with no help. You know, nowhere. You know, it's not no help. You know, they not they don't have no help. They don't. They wasn't ready for anything like this. So as somebody who's actually been through the situation um, fearing that you would receive corona and then all of a sudden you find out that you, you have it and then now you're recovered, what are your thoughts as far as moving forward on this? Because, you know, um, to be preventative or to like, I guess, how, do, how, are, how are you holding up mentally during this whole process? Well, you, well, you, well first, I, I, you most definitely have got to have a strong mind. And I can't say for all, but I'm a Christian. So as far as um, praying, you know, I put God first. You know, that's first and foremost. Mm-hmm. But um, trying to deal with it, you just got to take it, you know, I've been taking it one day at a time. And I've actually been trying to stay 10 steps ahead and keep my mind focused on me, um, get relief back into society. Mm-hmm. You know, trying to come out a better individual I was coming in. And um, you just really, like, you don't use, like who who would be, who would expect it? You know, one minute remaining. For the virus to you know come through, mm-hmm. you know, so it, it's just really you taking it. I've been taking it one day at a time, basically. I think COVID exposed all of our systems, right? Um, in our criminal justice system, you can totally see clearly the disparities and why the disparities exist, right? We noticed the disparities in our school system. All of these different things you're starting to see, you know, there's a school system inside a prison, right? Um, it's not for higher learning. However, it's still a system in there. And I believe that COVID has exposed a lot of things in a lot of our systems, Um and and you totally can see the racism in it at its finest. Put some emphasis on our systems. All of our systems have never been broken. 
these our systems were very strategically thought out and very planned and very intentional. And until we clearly understand this was not a oops, this was not a, a my fault or a mistake. This was very intentional. It was very on purpose and it was designed a specific way for a specific group of people to be ostracized, to be set apart so that they can, you know, demonize in every way, shape and form, you know, this is what black people are. This is how this community of people are. Um, it was very intentional. And so because I see, I, I, I've seen it, but I don't think our country as a whole has seen it in its full totality. And I think to some degree, people are seeing the very realness of being incarcerated and the effects, how it can affect you mentally, um, physically, in every aspect of your life, it changes everything about who you are. And so you have to, if you're not able to define who you are, this community, our society, they will define who you are. Um, and until you understand your identity, they'll give you an identity. They'll tell you this is who you are. They may say you're a rapist or you're a murderer or you're a drug dealer, all of these different things. And they will try to utilize that as a means to define you. But I believe strongly that this has exposed and it gives us a new narrative. And I think for the people who genuinely want to help, they will. And for the people who still see it the same way, that's just what's in their heart. And um, it ain't until something comes knocking at your front door that you're ready to make a change. So um, I believe that this will bring a, a new light to to the whole racism and, you know, pull yourself up by the bootstraps, all of that kind of talk, um, because it's much more difficult for a person of color um, because we have put so many different obstacles. But nevertheless, you see the resilience in us and you also see that despite what you what you take us through, we still can come out and shine. So what I, what I would say to every person that's listening is I would say, if you want to make a difference and change this, it's a couple of ways to do it. So I don't want to just limit it to one specific way, but one way is you can totally get involved with Nehemiah. Like, you know, get involved, get informed, um, talk to individuals so that you can be involved and where you specifically can fit in at. That's just one part. Um, another part is it's totally for us to talk to our legislators to make a change in that aspect, because that's huge. We have to change some of these laws, these policies, these things that are totally used as weapons. Like this ain't even like a law, it's like, you using the law as a means not to make things right or to do the right thing. We utilizing the, the the law as a means to weaponize and 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 basically take out again a group of individuals based on on a legal stance, right? 
But the final thing I would say individuals should do is there's a multitude of people who may not ever get an opportunity to walk into a college, right? They may and they may not. But for those who have not, I believe strongly, for people who have degrees and have um, resources and have those different things, start teaching people what you know. Teach them what you know. Start to give them a greater understanding how to be able to navigate through this. Because though we, we, we want to wait for the, gover the government to make some changes, but we don't know when that's going to happen because it's been a certain way for so long, right? It's been so off scale, so off balance. When, I, when they showed a picture of uh, the Lady of Justice and how it's blind, but it's not blind, it's very, it's very visible, it's very clear, right? And so we as just average people have to teach other people who may not get those opportunities, who may not be connected to a Nehemiah or to another organization or whatever the case may be. But every time you have the opportunity, I believe strongly that when we pour into other individuals and show them how to go about doing something different, um, they'll do just that, something different. Thank you for listening to the Justified Anger podcast. Justified Anger is an initiative of Nehemiah. This podcast was made with the cooperation and collaboration of Rebecca Barber, Anthony Cooper, Aaron Hicks, Shannon Ross, Jeremy Holliday, Dr. Karen Reese, and Charla Miller. A special thank you to the individuals that shared their stories and experiences of incarceration. Some individuals' names are not included to protect their identity. Production and editing is by Eli Steenlich.